Chapter 4 The Hospital of Waiters Visited with the Gospel Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. John 5, 8 It was the Sabbath day. Where would Jesus spend that day, and how? He would not spend it, we're quite sure, in any unholy manner or in any insignificant way. What would he do? He would do good, because it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. Where would he do good? He knew that there was a sight in Jerusalem which was particularly painful the sight of a number of poor people, blind, lame, and afflicted, who were lying around a pool of water and waiting for a blessing which seldom came. He thought he would go and do good there, because good was most wanted there. I pray to God that all Christ's servants would feel that the most urgent need had the greatest claim upon them, and that they ought to exercise the most kindness where there is the most need. I ask that He would impress upon His servants that no way of spending the Sabbath could be better than carrying the gospel of salvation to those who are most in need of it. But it was a feast day as well. It was a great festival of the Jews, and Jesus had come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. Where will he feast? Had someone asked him to their house? There were Mary and Martha and Lazarus down at Bethany. Would they ask him? Sometimes even Pharisees and publicans would open their houses and make a banquet for him, but he wouldn't want the superficial praise of men. Where would he go? Was it an unusual choice for him to say to himself, My feast shall be kept among the blind, the afflicted, and the lame? No, it was not unusual because he had said to one who had invited him to his house, But when thou makest a banquet, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, 13-14. What he urged others to do, he would be sure to do himself. It was just like him to say, I will spend my feast in a hospital. I will use this day, sacred to joy and rest, by going where the sick multitudes lie thickly clustered together. It makes me happy to show mercy. To bless men is to find rest for my heart. Christ never feasts more joyfully than when He is doing good to others. The greater the act of His liberality, the more His blessed nature is filled with rest and joy. So we see the Saviour going down to the pool of Bethesda. He determined that he would exercise his mercy and overcome evil in the spot where sorrow and disease reigned supreme. I'll ask you to go with me, and with the Saviour, down to Bethesda's pool. While we're there, we'll notice that Jesus Christ fixes his eyes upon the most helpless person among that waiting company. Then we'll see how our Lord dealt with the man in a gospel fashion. First, we'll go down to the pool of Bethesda with its five porches. I call it the hospital of the waiters, because all the people who were there were doing one thing. They were waiting for the moving of the waters. There was nothing else they could do. They were lying sick with anxious eyes gazing upon the little pool, hoping to see it bubble up, hoping to see a widening circle forming upon its calm surface. They were waiting to plunge in immediately, because whoever plunged in first would receive a cure, one and no more. Wasn't I truthful when I said that it was a hospital of waiters? Too easily we could find a large company of waiters nowadays. I wish it wasn't so, but large numbers are always waiting. 
I think I personally know enough to fill all five porches. Some are waiting for a more convenient time. Perhaps they believe that this more convenient time will come to them on a sickbed, or possibly even upon their deathbed. It's a great mistake. They've heard the gospel, and they believe it to be true, but they haven't accepted it. They attend a place of worship continually, and they say to themselves, We hope that one of these days we'll be able to grab a hold of Christ and be healed of the disease of sin, but not now. How many years have you been waiting for the convenient time? Some of you have been waiting five, six, eight, ten, or twenty years. I even know some who have been waiting more than twenty years. I remember speaking to them about their souls, and they said then that they didn't intend to neglect the matter. They were waiting, and the time had not quite come. They didn't exactly explain what stood in the way, but it was something that was to be resolved in a few months, or maybe even weeks. But it hasn't been resolved, and they are still waiting. I fear that they will wait until the judgment day comes and finds them unsaved. They always imagine a good tomorrow, but tomorrow is a day which you won't find in the almanac. It's found nowhere but in the fool's calendar. The wise man lives today. What his hand finds to do, he does at once with all his might. Today is God's time, and when we are saved, it will be our time too. But sadly, many lie waiting until their joints stiffen, their eyes fail, their ears are heavy, and their hearts are more and more indifferent. Will it be this way forever? Will you wait until you are cast into hell? In our second porch, a crowd of waiters waits for dreams and visions. You might think these are very few, but they're not as few as you imagine. They have an idea that perhaps one of these nights they'll have such a vivid dream of judgment that they will wake up alarmed, or such a bright vision of heaven that they will wake up fascinated by it. They've read in somebody's biography that he saw something in the air, or heard a voice, or had a text of Scripture laid home to him, as it's called. They are waiting until similar signs and wonders happen to them. I recognize that they are very anxious for this to happen, but their mistake is that they want it or expect it to happen at all. They lie there by the pool of Bethesda, waiting and waiting and waiting, as though they couldn't believe God, but they could believe in a dream. They couldn't place their confidence in the teaching of Holy Scripture, but they could believe in a voice which they imagined to be sounding in their ears even though it might be the chirp of a bird or might be nothing at all. They could trust their imagination, but they cannot trust the Word of God as it is written in the inspired volume. They want something over and above the sure word of testimony. The witness of God is not enough for them. They demand the witness of their desire or the witness of feeling, and they are waiting in the porch by the pool until that comes. What is this but an insulting unbelief? Is the Lord not to be believed until a sign or a wonder corroborates His testimony? Such waiting provokes the Most High. A third porch, full of people, will be found waiting for a sort of compulsion. They've heard that those who come to Christ are drawn by the Spirit of God. They believe the doctrines of grace, and I'm glad, because they are true, but they misinterpret those doctrines. They think the Spirit of God makes men do this or that against their wills, by exercising force. Their belief seems to be that men are taken to heaven by their ears, or dragged by force. 
and, because we speak of cords of love and bands of a man, they pick out the imagery and mistranslate it. Believe me, the Spirit of God never treats the human heart in the same way as you and I might treat a box to which we've lost the key. He does not wrench it and break it open. According to the laws of our nature, He acts with men as men. He draws with cords, but they are cords of love, and with bands, but they are bands of a man. It is by shining light on the judgment that He influences the will of man. He leads us to see things in a different light by the instruction which He gives to us. By that clearer light, He influences the understanding and the heart. The things we formerly loved, we see to be evil, and we hate them. And the things we once hated, we see to be good, and choose them. These people like to think that they will be made to repent, whether they desire it or not. Somehow they will be made to believe in Jesus Christ, whether they want to or not. But that's not the way the Holy Spirit acts. Let me warn you about the great sin of putting the Holy Spirit into contrast or rivalry with Jesus Christ. The gospel is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So for you to say, I am waiting for the Holy Spirit, is to place Jesus in a kind of opposition to the Holy Spirit, when in reality the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all agree. They are one, and the testimony of Jesus is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit works in men, He works with the things of Christ, not with any new things. He takes of the things of Christ and reveals them to us. If a man rejects the gospel which says, Believe and live, he rejects the Holy Spirit. He will not bring any other gospel, but will leave him to believe in Jesus or to die in his sins. You must have Christ or perish. If you refuse to obey his gospel word, neither will God the Father nor God the Spirit intervene to deliver you. Jesus Christ has the Spirit to bear witness of him. When the Holy Spirit comes, he convinces men of sin because they don't believe on Christ. He doesn't lead them to trust in some work over and above the work of Jesus, but to rest simply and alone on the atonement which Christ has provided. Woe to those who linger anywhere short of this! The fourth porch is attractive to many people, especially at this peculiar time in history. They are waiting for a revival. We've heard happy news in which we rejoice of great revivals in different parts of England, Scotland, and Ireland. There are some who say, Oh, if a revival came here, I would be converted. Another might proclaim, If the two honored servants of God would come here and hold services, then surely we would be converted. They look to men for their motivation. I thank God for every genuine revival. Whenever he works, I rejoice in it. But for any man to suppose that the gospel command is suspended for a time until a revival comes, is to suppose a lie. The gospel says, Repent and be baptized each one of you. Acts 2.38. So said Peter on the day of Pentecost. Or, in other words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The gospel call is, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3.7-8. It doesn't say, Wait, wait, wait for times of refreshing, wait for a revival. I am inclined to think that even if a revival did come, 
people who are currently using it as an excuse for delay would be very unlikely to get a blessing from it. Or if they thought they got a blessing, it would in all probability be a mistake altogether, because they would be depending upon men or upon fleshly excitement. They would not be looking to Jesus Christ, who is just as able to save them now as he would be in a revival. He is just as able to save them by my voice now, or by no voice at all, as he would be by any other man, however useful that man may be. I fear there are many waiting in that porch. Many are waiting in the porch of strong emotional experience. They want an experience, so they want the minister to preach a very alarming sermon. They want him to be very warm hearted and passionate, as he ought to be, but they also want him to fix them to shoot the arrow into their flesh so they will be pierced in the heart. It is for this that they wait. They come here every Sunday, and they have been touched a great deal, and made to feel very uneasy. They have felt as if they could hardly sit through the sermon, but they somehow managed to do it. They have managed to wait and wait. When will I reach you? How am I to preach? Surely, if I knew how I could bring you to Jesus Christ, it would be my delight to do it. But I cannot preach any other gospel than the one I preach, and I cannot do it more plainly. Neither do I think I can do it with more passion, because I desire the salvation of sinners with my whole soul. Many may preach it better, but none more from the heart than I do. If you are looking for me to do something more, you will look in vain, because I have nothing better to bring. I have pointed you to a Saviour's flowing wounds and begged you to look to Him and live. If you will not accept His salvation, then I have no other hope to set before you. If you won't trust my Lord, not even an angel from heaven could give you any other hope. If men won't hear the gospel I have preached, neither will they be converted even if one rises from the dead. Scripture And he said unto him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though one rose from the dead. Luke 16.31 I have shown you five porches of waiting. Now I'll tell you why I'm sure they are wrong to wait. I will set before you their theory. The people around the pool waited because an angel would come and stir the water, and whoever stepped in first would be healed. That was their idea. They were not looking to Jesus, any of them. Hadn't they heard that Jesus was healing the sick? Had they never heard about the woman who came behind him in the crowd, touched his garment, and was healed from her issue of blood? Had they never heard of a nobleman's son who was at the point of death and was made to live? Had they never heard of any of this? I don't know, but it's clear that they never tried to get to Jesus, nor did they cry out to him. They trusted wholly in the pool, the angel, and the stirring of the water. If they had been wise, they would have said, This is uncertain, and only happens occasionally. But Jesus says, He that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 He is able to save completely those who come to God by Him. It would make the most sense to crawl as best we can to those dear feet and look up into His face and say, Jesus, Thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Luke 18.38 Here we have the opposition theory to the gospel, and I want to knock it to pieces if the Holy Spirit will help me. It's the theory of waiting and of looking for something instead of looking to Christ alone. These people attach great importance to the place. 
they remained at the pool of Bethesda. There was the place. If they would ever get anything good, they would get it there. In the same way, I find that waiters often attach great importance to the place of worship. They expect to find salvation there only. Don't you know that Jesus can save your souls tomorrow morning while you're at work, just as well as next Sunday in the tabernacle? Don't you know that Jesus is just as much a Savior on Saturday as on Sunday? Don't you know that when you are walking in the streets, in Cheapside, or in the borough, if you breathe a prayer to Him, He is just as mighty to save you as He would be if you were on your knees, or at home, or sitting here and listening to the gospel? He is wherever there is a heart that wants Him. Wherever there is an eye that desires to look to Him with a glance of faith, there Jesus is. There are no pools of Bethesda now. Those would only be places set apart to monopolize the dispensation of divine mercy. Wherever we seek Him, He is found, and every place is hallowed ground. So get to Him in these pews, because this is a place where He is. If you were lying on your sickbed, I would tell you He was there. If you were hard at work at a carpenter's bench, or out in the fields driving the plough, I would have nothing more to say to you than this. The word is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, 8-9. The theory that we are to wait at the pool of rules is Antichrist's gospel. Christ's gospel is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Then they say that they are waiting for signs and wonders. Those who waited at Bethesda waited for an angel. I don't know whether they ever saw an angel, or if the water was stirred mysteriously by an invisible wing, but they waited for an angel, a mystery. People like a mystery, but the craving is evil, because even though the gospel is in one respect the mystery of godliness, as far as sinners are concerned, it is the plainest thing in all the world. It is this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. God has presented him to be a payment for sin. The blood of Jesus is a substitutionary offering to God's justice instead of our death. Whoever trusts Christ to stand in his place, and so accepts Christ to be his substitute, is a saved man. Priests try to make a mystery out of everything nowadays and this is that word which is written upon the forehead of the whore of Babylon, according to the book of Revelation. Scripture, Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17, 5. Her mass is a mystery, and her ceremonies are all mysteries. The Latin language is used to make the service a mystery. The priest himself is a mystery. Baptism is a mystery. However, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the essential truth is as plain as the nose on your face. In his poem, Truth, William Cowper writes, Legible only by the light they give, stand the soul-quickening words, Believe and live. A man who is almost an idiot can even understand this. Trust Christ. Accept Christ to be your substitute before God, and you are saved on the spot, saved in an instant. No, they wait, 
and pine for a mystery. They even believe that the Holy Spirit Himself has come upon them to confuse the gospel, when in reality what He does is make the gospel even more clear to us. When He comes, He tears the mystery away, removes the scales from our eyes, and makes us see that it's a simple matter to receive Jesus and become the sons of God. Again, these waiters, who attach so much importance to place and are waiting for mysteries, appear to be waiting also for an influence which is intermittent. It was only at a certain season that the angels stirred the pool. So they seem to think that there are only certain times and seasons when Christ is willing to receive sinners, and occasional intervals when they can hope to find salvation. However, the mercy of my God is not like the pool of Bethesda, stirred only now and then. It's a well of water always springing up, and whoever believes in Jesus, whether it's morning, noon, or night, will find that Christ is ready to receive sinners. The words, Come, for all things are now ready, are one of the gospel proclamations. Luke 14, 17. Things are ready, and ready now. They're not ready sometimes, but at all times. It's not now and then, occasionally, on Sundays, high days, and revival days. He says, Today, if ye will hear his voice. Hebrews 3.15. Also, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of saving health. 2 Corinthians 6.2. Therefore, because these people think that there's a certain intermittent influence, they believe that all they have to do is wait. But they wait in a very strange way. If I was scheduled to be hanged tomorrow morning, and I knew that an application had been made for pardon, I would wait for the result. But how do you think I would wait? Suppose I had no hope of heaven and knew I would be hanged tomorrow, and I had a slim chance a pardon might come. I would wait for it. But how would I wait? Would I go to sleep tonight? Would I make a feast and get drunk? No. My life, my very life, is in jeopardy. I cannot take it lightly. How do sailors on a wrecked vessel wait for the lifeboat? Do you think they are idle? No, they strain their eyes as they watch for help and busy themselves with signals of distress, begging for help. Do they go to sleep on the wreck and say, If we are to be saved, we'll be saved, let's go to sleep? No, they are waiting, and if a vessel appeared with a rope, they would grab a hold of it without hesitation and wait no more. It's a lie, nine times out of ten, when men say they are waiting for Christ because they don't have intense anxiety or the painful uneasiness of mind which goes with true waiting. It's really only a make-believe waiting, a mere excuse. Whatever sort of waiting it is, it is the direct opposite to the gospel, which never says a word about waiting, but commands men to believe and live. Besides, these people are waiting for a very limited influence. Only one person was healed at a time at Bethesda, and he was the first who plunged in. So when the waiters hear of anyone being saved, they think that he was in more favorable circumstances than themselves, that he was placed in a better position for obtaining salvation. They seem to be in the rear of the ranks and unable to get to this wonderful pool of theirs. It's all a mistake. Jesus Christ is as near to one seeker as another. If a man has been moral, the gospel says to him, Believe. If a man has been immoral, the gospel cries to him, Believe. If a man is a king, the gospel commands him to believe. If he is a beggar, 
it begs him also to believe. If a man is full of self-righteousness, the gospel points him to Christ and tells him to give up his righteousness. If a man is full of depravity and rotten with sin, it points him to Christ and begs him to give up his sin and look to Jesus. So, the basis upon which the gospel addresses sinners is the same at all times. It doesn't say less or more to the child of the harlot than to the child of the Christian woman. It presents the same pardon to the great sinner and the little sinner, if there is such a thing, and presents the same rich blessing to the chief of sinners as it does to the children of godly parents. Don't get false notions in your head. The same Lord over all is generous to all who call upon Him. Like faith obtains a like blessing. There is a limit because the Lord knows those that are His. 2 Timothy 2.19. But in the preaching of the gospel, we are not bound by a decree which is secret, but by our marching orders. Scripture, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be condemned. Mark 16.15-16. He who commanded me to preach to every creature, did not exempt one soul from my message. There you have it. I have tried to show why so many wait, and I will add only one thing more on this point. Some of these people who are waiting rely heavily on other people. Even this poor man said, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. I receive letters every week from people in distress who ask me to pray for them, which I cheerfully do. But as a general rule, I say to them, Dear friends, I beg you not to try quieting your mind by asking me to pray for you. That's not your hope. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, whether you are prayed for or not. I try to get them away from their reliance on anybody's prayers, to look to Jesus alone. Don't say, I'll ask my friends to pray for me, and then be at ease. You may say it if you like, but don't rest in that, I beg you. Jesus Christ is to be looked to, not other people's prayers. If you look to Jesus, you will have immediate salvation. But even if the whole church of God went down on its knees at one time and stayed there for the next fifty years praying for you, you would certainly be damned if you did not believe in Jesus. If you pray for yourself and look to Jesus alone, you shall most assuredly be saved. Isn't that enough about the dreary hospital full of waiters? Now let's look at this from another angle. When Jesus Christ entered the hospital, he looked around and picked out the most helpless man in the whole world. I noticed on the theater billboard a line which said, The poorest people are the most welcome. That's a gospel sentence, and that's how it is with Christ. He always loves to give his mercy to those who want it most. There lay that man, and he didn't think of Christ, but Christ stood and looked at him. He didn't know Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ knew him, and he knew that he had been a long time in that condition. He knew that he had been sick for thirty-eight years. He knew all that, and he knew before the man told him that he must have been disappointed quite often, and indeed he had been. He had often tried, as well as his paralyzed body would enable him, to get into the water, but somebody, even some blind man, who had managed to get nearer the edge and had the use of his limbs, plunged in first and came up with his eyes open, 
while this poor, nervous creature could not get into the water in time. He had seen many others cured, and that had made his disease even more painful to him. Their cures had not encouraged him, but rather made him sadder. He was the most indecisive, wavering kind of man you've ever met. In comparison, read the story of the man whose eyes were opened by Christ. He said, One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. John 9.25 There's a fine, hard-headed fellow. He might have been a Scotsman. But this man was indecisive, wavering, and weak in mind. You even know some such people. Perhaps you have them in your family. You can't help them. If you set them up in business, they are sure to fail. Whatever they do, it never succeeds. They are a poor, weak, childish sort of people, who need to be put in a basket and carried on somebody else's back all through life. There are people of this sort when it comes to religion, and this man was the type of them. He desperately longed to be healed, but he didn't say that. Jesus asked him, Dost thou desire to be made whole? He didn't say, O Lord, I desire it with all my heart. Instead, he went on with a rambling story, saying, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, and so on. When our Lord did heal him, he didn't ask Christ his name. When he found that out afterwards, he went like an idiot to the Pharisees and told them directly who his benefactor was, and so got the Lord into trouble. There are still these kinds of people. They barely know their own mind. They know they want to be saved, but they seldom say as much. They are convicted easily enough, but they get convicted the other way almost as easily. They are indecisive and unstable. However, our Lord and Master picked out this very man to be the subject of his healing energy. The wonders of grace belong to God. He said himself, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Luke 10, 21. For God has chosen that which is the foolishness of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen that which is the weakness of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and that which is vile of the world, and that which is despised, God has chosen, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-28. This poor, hapless, helpless, paralyzed man, almost as paralyzed in his brain as he was in his body, was pitied by our gracious Lord. So who is the most helpless man or woman in this place today? I know some of you are saying, I'm afraid that's me. I have good news for you. You're just the sort our Lord loves to begin with. Don't be offended by the description, but be willing to embrace it. You're probably looking back on your past life and are compelled to say, Well, that's really what I've been. I have plenty of wits about me in business, and I'm sharp enough there, but when it comes to religion, I'm afraid that I'm just that kind of fool. I have no resolution. I have no fixed determination. I'm always being led around by temptation or drawn the wrong way by evil companions. My poor friend, Lie down at the feet of Jesus Christ in all your helplessness, in all your stupidity, and pray for the Lord to look upon you. A brother once said to me, I wish you would never speak to anybody but sensible sinners. I said, Well, I'm happy to preach to sensible sinners when they come to hear me, but so many stupid sinners come along with them 
that I'm bound to preach to them as well. And I do. I present the gospel to those who feel like they're oblivious and stupid in everything, and who consider themselves among the foolish. Jesus has come to seek and save poor, lost, ruined, dead sinners, and I pray for him to look on you at this time. My third point is how Jesus Christ dealt with the man. If Jesus Christ had belonged to a certain class of ministers, he would have said, Well done, man, you're lying at the pool of religious rules, and there you had better lie. He did not belong to that way of thinking, so he didn't say anything of the sort. Neither did he say, as some brethren do, My dear friend, you should pray. Very proper advice in some respects, but Jesus did not give it. He knew better. He didn't say, Now you must begin to pray and wait for the Lord. That's a very good thing to say to some people, but it's not the gospel for sinners. Jesus Christ did not say to his disciples, Go into all the world and tell people to pray. No, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So, what did Jesus Christ do to him? He gave him a command. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. The words sound like three thunderclaps. But he can't, he can't, he is paralyzed. Yes, but the gospel is a command, and we read about some who disobey the gospel. A man cannot disobey what isn't a command. He cannot be disobedient unless there is a command to begin with. Jesus Christ brought the gospel blessing of healing to him as a command. He said, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. It was a command which implied faith, because the man could not rise, and could not take up his bed, and could not walk of himself. However, if he believed in Jesus Christ, he could rise, and take up his bed, and walk. So it was really a command to exercise faith in Jesus, and to prove it by practical works. But the man couldn't do it. That has nothing to do with it. The power is not in the sinner, but in the one giving the command. He couldn't rise on his own, but Jesus Christ could make him do so. And when I, or any other minister of the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, address you, chosen sinner, and say to you, Trust Jesus Christ, we don't do so because we believe there is any strength in you any more than there was in the paralyzed man. We speak in the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Who has sent us to say to you, Rise up and walk. I trust the Lord to send his power with the gospel. I know very well that I have no power of my own, but he who sent me will bless his own message as he pleases. If you are to get salvation, you will get it by believing in Jesus and rising at once out of the state you are now in. By his power, through the simple act of believing in him, you will be made whole. The man believed in Jesus. That was all he did. The wavering fool that he was, indecisive and all that, he had enough sense, and God gave him enough grace, to simply believe in Jesus. He made up his mind to try his legs, and to his surprise, oh, how astonished he must have been, those poor legs would bear him. He stood and found he could stoop, and he rolled up his mattress, picked it up, and walked away with it. What joy went through his body! You have been ill. But the Lord has restored you. You got up and found yourself able to walk. Wasn't it a delight to you? I know the sensation well. 
What must it be like to be paralyzed for thirty-eight years, and then to be able to stoop, roll up a bed, put it on your back, and walk away? It must have been a delight to feel new life leaping through his nerves and muscles and veins. Now, if a sinner says, Well, I never tried it before, but by the grace of God I will trust my soul in the hands of Jesus. I do believe, I will believe, that Jesus died for me, and on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Then, sinner, you will rise up and walk. You will be surprised yourself to find the mighty change which God is working in you by his blessed Spirit through that simple act of faith. You will descend those tabernacle steps hardly knowing where you are, singing for joy, because the Lord has taken you out of the hospital of waiters and placed you among the believers. He has said, Then the lame one shall leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall praise, for waters shall be dug in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 35, 6. Jesus Christ treated this man in a gospel way for the way in which faith came into that man is very remarkable. He didn't know Jesus Christ, so why did he believe in him? It was this. He didn't know who he was, but he knew he was somebody very wonderful. There was a look about him, a majestic gleam in his eye, a wonderful force in the tone of that voice, a power very different from what the man had ever seen before. He didn't know who he was, and didn't know his name, but somehow confidence was born in his soul. How much more, then, may faith come to you who know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You know that He died and made a full atonement for sin, that He has risen from the dead, and that He sits at the right hand of God the Father. You know that all power is given to Him in heaven and on earth, and that He is able also to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by Him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25. Don't say, I'll try and get faith. That's not the way. If I want to believe a statement, how do I accomplish that? Why, I hear it, and faith comes by hearing. Romans 10.17. If I have any doubt about it, I hear it again, and ask to have it repeated to me more fully. And when I have heard it again, conviction flashes upon me. So Jesus in the gospel says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an eternal covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55, 3. Hear me. Believe me. This is, in its briefest form, the gospel which Jesus preaches to men's hearts. God gives His witness concerning Christ that He is His Son, for out of heaven He spoke, and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17. Won't you believe Him? Scripture. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. 1 John 5.8. Believe Jesus Christ. The evidence is strong. Yield up your soul to it, and you will find joy, peace, and eternal life. The man's belief in Jesus, actively proved by his rising, settled the matter. That's a very different scenario than lying and waiting. I think that this man, if he had thought about it, would go back and say to others lying and waiting, Why are you waiting and lying still? I was lying and waiting for thirty-eight years, 
and I got nothing at all by lying and waiting. Neither will you. Simple as he was, he would have said, I'll tell you what's better than lying and waiting. There's a man among us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If we trust him, he will heal us, because he heals all kinds of diseases. If you can't go to him, send a messenger to him, because he even healed a nobleman's son from many miles away. Believe him, and blessing will go out of him, for it's not possible for any to trust him and not be healed. I would have liked to have been that man, simpleton as I might have been, to have the opportunity to tell those poor souls who are lying and waiting the difference between lying and waiting and immediately believing. I would put it in the simplest way I could, because I waited myself when I was a child. I heard a lot of preaching that led me to wait. I think I would have kept on waiting if I hadn't heard a poor primitive Methodist brother cry, Look, young man, look now. I looked then and there, and I found salvation on the spot, and I have never lost it. I have nothing else to say to you, but there is light in a look at the Crucified One, and every man who looks will have it, here, now, and at once. Oh, that many would look! Don't you understand? Christ took upon Himself the wrath of God, instead of those who trust Him. Jesus Christ took the sins of all who trust Him. He was punished instead of every believer, so that God will not punish a believer because He has punished Christ in His place. Christ died for the man who believes in Him, so that it would be injustice on the part of God to punish that man, because how will He punish twice for the same offense? Faith is the seal and evidence that you were redeemed nineteen hundred years ago upon the bloody tree of Calvary. You are justified, and who will bring any charges against you? Scripture. Who is he that condemns them? Christ Jesus is he who died, and, even more, he that also rose again, who furthermore is at the right hand of God, who also makes entreaty for us. Romans 8.34. This is the gospel of your salvation. Oh, but I don't feel. Did I say anything about feeling? You will have feeling after you have faith. But I'm not right. I don't care what you are or are not. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes in me has eternal life. John 6 47. Oh, but away with your butts. Here's the gospel. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is thirsty, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22.17 What the Spirit and the Bride of Christ say, surely I may say, and do say. May God bless the saying of it, and may you accept it, you waiting ones. May you look, believe, and live for Jesus' sake. Amen.